Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guest today for episode 100 is the same guest you heard on the first episode, Chris Berry, the voice of reason. Initially, I was planning to do episode 100 as about 10 or 15 minutes of Chris and then some clips from my favorites over the 100 episodes. But once Chris and I started talking, it just seemed to me that a conversation with Chris was worthy of an entire episode. So we go almost an hour, talk about a number of topics in the rapidly changing world of lithium and battery metals. So without further ado, Chris Berry. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Chris Berry, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. What is this, your fourth or fifth time? Oh, I think this is a four-peat for me. So uh, if I had four rings on my fingers, uh, you would see them here. So, you know, guests need to send them a nice commemorative ring. Uh, that way we know. I always felt the hat wasn't enough. Um, <laughs> and I don't even know if you ever got a hat because we didn't have hats when you were first on. And yeah, I actually think, though, you've you've provided commentary, brief commentary on a couple other episodes. I have. That's and I do have a hat. That's why I added the number. Yeah, this is full circle. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't go back to the beginning, Chris Berry was the inaugural guest in a shabby studio on the wrong side of the tracks. Literally in, and figuratively on the other Buenos side Aires. of the And I think that was your first trip to Argentina. It was, it was. That was, that was 2017. Um, and, you know, I think we were down there for the Fast Markets Conference or Industrial Minerals or whatever it was called at that point in time. And when there was a tour going on too, mm-hmm. to uh, Ola and, Rose yeah. and Ora Cobre, and they even did a drive-by at Advantage Lithium, as I recall. They but, did a drive-by, and I have, I have a number of memories of, of being up there. And one of them was you and I were in uh, Ora Cobre's plant. And um, we were about to walk up a set of stairs and, you know, obviously it's elevation. People aren't necessarily attuned to it. And we were starting to walk, watch people walk upstairs. And you said, this is when people usually fall. Watch this. Now, uh, nobody did fall on the stairs there, but I think there were a couple of fallen soldiers later that day. So I don't know where you were at the time, but the shout out to the bureau chief, of Bloomberg in Buenos Aires because Carolina was on that trip. She was standing next to me when all of a sudden she wasn't standing next to me. And uh, the quickest recovery I've ever seen because they got her medical attention and she pelted me with many questions on the bus ride, the very long bus ride back uh, to, to civilization. The white knuckle bus ride. Um, anyways, now we're, you know, now we're hearing from my dog who, uh, shout out to Fiona for, uh, providing commentary. Anyway, we started this in 2017. I listened to that episode this morning just to kind of refresh myself. And it, <laughs> se- it seems like the industry's kind of gone full circle. Now we're back into the, everybody's talking about lithium 2019 and 2020 lithium was kind of the forgotten element what's your perspective on what's happened in the last 
four years. And as you asked me in a fast markets events, probably the summer before we did the first podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is it different this time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's in some ways, yes. The question is, will the, will the end result be the same? And I, I think that you know, when I go back to that trip to Argentina, I, I remember thinking to myself that, you know, with respect to lithium and, and the battery business and electrification, that this is what I, I called the cell phone moment. Uh, what I mean by that is the following. So in 1987, I was 13 years old and I actually held in my hands and used for the first time a cell phone. You know, it was, it was the size of a King James Bible or a Harry Potter novel. I just, I always remember that because that was really the tipping point for me. And we, we saw what happened with respect to telecommunication and technology and how it's gotten smaller and smaller and more powerful and become more ubiquitous. And supply chains obviously have adjusted over the last, whatever it is, 20 or 30 years. And it just seems to me that with so much R&D, so much capital, so much interest and so much opportunity along the EV supply chain or the renewable supply chain, that I think you're going to see a very similar sort of transition with respect to technology and change and the ubiquity of that technology in the EV business and the renewable business. And of course, what underpins that, and this is something that hasn't changed since 2017, is access to the raw materials. There's a much broader awareness these days of the strategic importance of lithium, of cobalt, of rare earths. I mean, we just sort of go down the list, but you know, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is maybe we can get into the amount of capital that's been raised and so on and so forth. It, it's really, it's an execution issue at this point in time, in my view. I mean, I think that your average investor, whether or not they're an analyst at a hedge fund or, or family office or what have you, a corporation, they're a lot more educated about the whole supply chain. You know, the questions I was getting in 2017 were explain to me the difference between spodumene and hydroxide. And, you know, these are smart, smart people. And now those same people are coming to me and, and asking questions about supply chains and costs and, and how technology is going to change perhaps the trajectory of supplier demand. So they're much more advanced. I think it's incumbent on the capital allocators, if that makes any sense, the companies themselves to execute appropriately and execute properly. I mean, we did see some rather high profile failures in the upstream portion of the supply chain during the last boom. And if we are going to get to a 10 or a 15 or a 20% EV penetration rate, whatever your, whatever your forecast is, we, we cannot afford to have those failures. And so that's really important, certainly here in the West. Well, that's a good point to raise. If you're projecting 15 to 20% EV penetration in the next five years, which some people are, and it's BEV, not just mm-hmm. some form of electrification. When you talk to people with those kind of numbers, is there any thought process? Is lithium and adequate amounts of other battery metals, is that just assumed? Because I can't do the math on, even with a, even yeah. if you took a 45 kilowatt hour battery average, which is in my mind now is low, you can't do 15 or we've just not had the investment. So. No, no way. And you and I both know that, you know, you need to be investing today to have the capacity up and running and scaled by 2025 and beyond. And so, you know, I always, I, you know, you've had Chris Reed on the podcast in the past, and he's said a couple of things that stuck with me. 
you know, he can see that pathway of how we can get to that million ton number for lithium by 2025. Yeah, it'll be bumpy and maybe there will be a, a hiccup in 2023 or what have you. We can argue about that. But going from 1 million tons to roughly 2 million tons by 2030 is a completely different ballgame. I think that in 2017, you know, as we were sitting there in Argentina, everyone assumed, you know, you snap your fingers or you turn a knob or flick a switch and there's more lithium, there's more battery quality, you know, nickel sulfate or rare earths are going to be there, no problem. And clearly that's not the case anymore. And I think a lot of people, I don't think, I know a lot of people along the supply chain, whether or not they're investors or oil and gas players, they've realized that that there's a pinch here. Do you believe that when the shortages occurred 16, 17, and then there was this kind of out of nowhere response of spodumene from Western Australia. Do you think that that cemented the feeling among many of these guys that, hey, look, it's supply and demand and we had a shortage and now we have an oversupply. Do you think that is long-term was a negative to the whole lithium story? I think a lot of generalist investors, excuse me, got beaten up in 2018 and 2019 because they probably thought that, and this really, I think, speaks to the debate around, is lithium a specialty chemical or is it a commodity, right? And we're just, I'm not going to really address it because we'll just go around in circles. And I think that I think it's a specialty chemical, but I think it behaves like a commodity. Look, perhaps in 2030, when we're at 2 million tons, maybe the market is deeper. Maybe it's more liquid. Maybe there's a futures contract that people can trust and rely on and utilize for hedging purposes. Maybe it will be different then. But for now, it's, it's just really challenging. The pricing, the lack of pricing transparency has really thrown people off for sure. Let me just throw out the scenario that the way I think about it, which I don't think is the way most people think about it. And that's that if you take an Aura Cobra, their pricing went well over 10,000 during the, the shortage cycle, mm-hmm. but it went down to 3,000 during, <laughs> not, well, two quarters ago, I think it was 3,113 yeah. was the reported quarterly price. Yet you had pricing in Korea and Japan for battery quality stay over 10,000. And to put that into perspective, 3,000 is much less than the price was before this run-up started. Mm-hmm. But 10,000 is double what the price was in June of 2015. The crash everybody talked about, no problem acknowledging that that price went down. It went down at the high end, it went down at the low end, but it crashed at the low end. And it moderated at the high end. And I think those are two very different things that continue to be missed when people look at, you know, I, I hear, I get calls all the time says, well, after the price crash, and I said, well, okay, but let's, what do you think price was in 2014? And nobody that's talking no idea. has any idea. When I say that, then they're like, well, that can't be right. And I said, well, I, trust me, it, it's absolutely right. And, you know, yeah. I have the data. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the issue, at least for investors here in the West is given that uh, bifurcation of price, if if that's the right way to think about it. I mean, you had, I'm just trying to think what some of the prices of the equities were at the peak. I mean, Albemarle was like $144 a share. All of these, these producers were bid way, way up. And I think people latched on to the narrative of pricing has crashed and just took the stocks down with them irrespective of, to your point, the fact that 
depending upon where you looked in the world, pricing was, was very, very different. Now they all, they all got hurt to be fair, but yeah, it's, it's just a very nuanced market and a very new, the whole EV theme, I think it's very nuanced. And what I find interesting is, you know, I'll go and talk to investors, whether or not they're buy side or sometimes on the sell side, and you go into some of these meetings and you've got the clean tech analyst, you've got the mining analyst, you've got all of these kind of sector specific people that are in this meeting and they're trying to figure out how does this all work? Okay. It's not as simple as, Hey, you know what? I don't know. Copper looks like it's in a structural problem out over the next five years or something like that. So I'm going to talk to the mining analyst and we'll debate supply and demand. And that's that. Um, as you, you know, better than I do, that there's a huge technological and sort of geopolitical and clean tech component to the whole EV theme, especially when you start talking about lithium. That's why I think it takes dedication to, to really understand what's happening here. I recently had Seth Goldstein on the podcast from Morningstar. And one of the things that impressed me most about him as an analyst was that in April of 2020, he already had the answer for 2021 and 2022, way ahead of other people. And honestly, just by hard work, because he doesn't, I mean, you know, he's not dealing with the battery guys. He's not moving product in the market, (laughs) but it was almost a savant like uh, analysis. And, you know, now everybody's singing out of Seth's songbook, but Seth wrote the song a year ago. Yeah. Everybody tip of the cap, right? I mean, he, he, he nailed it. I think that I, it was a pretty dour sort of view until Tesla's battery day, I think arguably was the spark that kind of brought everything back. I mean, whether or not you can actually use table salt and water to produce (laughs) battery grade hydroxide from clay is another story. Uh, My answer would be no, but nevertheless, that woke people up like Rick, that woke up the average investor again. And I think the other issue is the outrageous amount of SPAC money that is out there. Most of it's further down the EV supply chain, but you know you had MP materials on the um, rare earth side and, and a bunch of others as well. And so you got all this money that's looking for a home. And I think it's really elevated a lot of the valuations across the supply chain right now. Well, the interesting thing about Battery Day was to me, because I've always been critical of the way Elon's talked about lithium and the, and the deals he's done. But in that particular case, despite how the two of us may feel about the, the salt and clay rhetoric, what he said validated in many people's minds, sedimentary, aka mm-hmm. clay assets. So you saw a run up in Lithium America stock when pricing was still in the tank and there was no, nobody was putting out price curves like I did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and they were able to tap the equity markets. And now they, you know, they have a clear, clear path on Thacker. So they do. They do. And you know what? That's, that's fantastic. And they're opportunistic. And, you know, coming back to what I said about capital raising and, and capital allocation, like that's, that's the crucial part of, I think, where we are in this cycle right now. And so the fact that LAC has raised half a billion dollars, I think roughly, you know, you go down the list, Piedmont, 122 million, Vulcan, 125 Australian, Sigma, I think 40 Canadian. I mean, the list sort of goes on and on and we're going to need that capital. So I'm, I'm glad to see it. And now from my perspective as an investor, it's who's going to allocate this appropriately to 
you know, build out the infrastructure and what I think is going to remain a pretty volatile yet bullish market. Honestly, when I look at that, I think, you know, what Elon did was positive for lack, but Mm -hmm. in terms of the OEMs being able to negotiate with the the lithium companies (laughs) now, they're in a much worse position because if these guys can move the move ahead with capital markets money and not with, you know, bankable off takes or however you want to, it's, you know, you, you've got companies like Volkswagen and, and BMW and Mercedes that I think are living in a fool's paradise right now. I mean, I don't know what your perspective is, but I think because of Elon star power, Tesla will get the lithium they need in just about any quantity in the next five or six years. But yeah. I think some of these other guys won't. Having to deal with gang fans, great, but gang fans not giving everybody their whole capacity. It's uh, right. Not possible. Oh, you're, you're right. And I mean, we, we had these discussions about lithium and yes, as I think VW said, it's the irreplaceable element. And so, you know, that's all well and good, but I mean, you got to think about nickel. You got to think about copper. You've got to think about the other cathode elements as well. And so I just, I just don't see the urgency uh, with respect to a lot of the OEMs. There's a lot of talk, there's battery day, there's power day, there's all kinds of stuff, but you just, you need to see a lot more upstream investment. I, I'm sorry to sort of pound the table on this and I sound like a broken record, but as you yourself have said a lot, a lot of times, I mean, without the lithium, without the nickel, without reliable access to it out over the next five to 10 to 15 years, you don't have much of a business. And it's clear that whether or not you look at it from a government perspective or even some of the corporations, you know, the whole ESG perspective now is being taken a lot more seriously and that really underpins, I think, a lot of the potential investment as well. Well, let's get into two things. One, if you go back to 20, end of 2017, when we did that first episode, we were just on the cusp of everybody saying hydroxide dominates the world mm-hmm. by 2025. <laughs> and we saw all the announcements. And I was, there weren't many people that were taking my position that that was bullshit. And it was going to be balanced anyway. And I always said hydroxide will grow faster. And I still believe that. But when you look at end market in 2025 or 2030, I still say carbonate is at least half. Yeah. Yeah. But now you've seen capital decisions be made, particularly by converters in China. And you got a lot of hydroxide capacity and you have kind of a dearth of... I mean, now Argentina looks a lot better because that's a carbonate-centric world. And just a couple of years ago, even somebody like a gang fan was totally focused on hydroxide. And now their public statements are very much towards balance. So how do you read that? Because not only have we not invested, in some cases, we've invested in the wrong mix of capacity, which further further exacerbates the problem. Yeah, I think, look, the rate of change, if there's one thing that has changed between or become more evident between 2017 and today, it's that the rate of change in this business has only accelerated. You know, you're absolutely right. There were lots of people pounding the table about hydroxide and its growth and LFP was toast. It's just uh, there's no energy density and it's hard to recycle and whatever the excuses were. And of course, almost the exact opposite has happened, right? I mean, BYD has come out with the blade battery, um, state-of-the-art LFP cathode. Actually, 
is I think reasonably competitive with, with some of the NMC technologies out there. So again, it speaks to, I guess the, I don't want to call it the danger, but the challenges in investing along the supply chain, right? I mean, uh, most of the juniors historically, you're right. We're talking about, we're going to produce hydroxide because hard rock to hydroxide is the way to go. And that's what the market wants. And, you know, arguably that's true, but carbonate clearly provides a lot of flexibility in the market that clearly the market's going to need going forward. I just, you know, I think the real issue here is that China is still a black box. There aren't a lot of people, you know, like you that have built businesses over there or lived over there or have kind of a direct line to what's literally happening on the ground. And that is, to me, that's an impediment to investment. Um, You know, maybe not from the VWs of the world, but your hedge funds or some of the faster money, because you, you really do have to be on the ground. I see it with rare earths. I see it with everything. China is, especially in light of all the geopolitical challenges now, it's just, it's so hard to know what's going on over there. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. In 2017, I think people were celebrating the rise of Gangfin and Tianchi because it was, these guys move fast, they'll get material out the door, they'll invest ahead of the curve. Right. But the the narrative now is totally... Well, they're sucking up all the raw materials and we need to get the United States needs to get their mojo, get their Manhattan project mentality behind yep. resources, not just lithium. But how do you view is is China a convenient whipping boy or whipping person to be politically correct <laughs> about? <laughs> you have to be woke, Joe. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why I'm going to get a T-shirt that says uh, newly woke. <laughs> I look, I think I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., right? And so I'll speak with folks in the State Department and the Department of Commerce. And China is about uh, our dis- mistrust of China, I think, is about the only bipartisan issue um, where there's any agreements today. Right. And, that, and that's about it. And I, look, I mean, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe not. I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot for a long time. I mean, the Chinese are intent on. Uh, competing, for lack of a better phrase, and being looked at as an equal to the United States. Go back about a month ago when uh, the United States and China met in Anchorage, Alaska. And it looked to me like the Chinese basically came in there and and were lecturing us, lecturing the United States about the fact that we're equals. We're not going to allow you to challenge our sovereignty or talk down to us anymore. We're on the same playing field. And of course, you know, the United States is there trying to perhaps reestablished relationships after the last four years. I, I don't know, but had a completely different message, whether or not it's about responsible stakeholders or, you know, you can pick your catchphrase. And so I don't want to say we have a real problem on our hands in the United States or, you know, in the West, if you want to include the EU, but we, we have to learn how to compete with a country that's not playing our game. Okay. They're not necessarily going to play by the same rules. I'm not saying they're going to cheat and do all this kind of stuff. They we're going to have to, I think, rethink about how we build out our own supply chains, about how we invest in R&D and how we utilize that R&D. And I don't think state supported capitalism, a la what happens in China, is really how we're going to beat them. I think it really boils down to R&D. Well, if we look at what's really happened in the high end of the battery market in the last 10 years. It's not a China story. Mm -mm, mm -mm. 
it's a Panasonic Tesla story. It's it is. LG or whoever you want to name. I mean, if we look at what the U.S. take GM, take Ford, whoever you want to name on on the United States, we're really not beholden to China from a tech perspective. And if you take the, we'll take benchmarks, who are the top battery makers? It's yeah. not a it's not a list of Chinese companies. No, certainly not in, in the top tier. And so we do, I think, still have that kind of tech edge. And that's something we want to exploit. Along with that comes with rebuilding the manufacturing base. And so I think we're at an opportune time to do that, right? We've got the political will, like I said, here in D.C., the capital. Again, if you just use what's going on with the, the SPAC market, uh, which I'm a little skittish about, to be honest yeah. with you. But nevertheless, the capital's there. The political will is there. We just need to spend the time to rethink how we want to do this. And, you know, look, I mean, we're not just competing with the Chinese anymore, even though the Europeans are allies of ours, we're competing with them as well. We're competing with them for intellectual firepower and intellectual property and also market share. Let's talk about Europe a little bit, because the way I view what's happening in Europe is, I mean, you can talk about Northvolt until you're blue in the face, but if you look at that map of battery factories a lot of Asian names on that map. Yeah, and yeah, this absolutely. Is, this is an Asian technology business, and it's not just China. How do you see that shaking out over the next five to 10 years? I mean, the EU's made a lot of pronouncements, but I think the bureaucrats have gotten way ahead of the company's ability to deliver yeah. on what the concept is. Yeah, I just, I think that it comes back to how all of this capital, these hundreds of billions of euros or hundreds of billions of dollars here in the United States, how is this going to be allocated? You know, is this a top-down directive or we're going to be rebuilding infrastructure or are we talking about homegrown R&D? You're absolutely right. When you look at that map of Europe and you go to Hungary, right? And it's Chinese companies or go to Austria or um, I'm just trying to think of some of the other spots as well, but you know, there aren't that many national champions in Europe in the same way that there are in China, for example, or Japan. And so it's not about capital. It's not about intellectual firepower. It's just about time. And it's going to take five plus years, I think, to really build out some semblance of a self-sustaining supply chain for EVs that doesn't touch China or minimizes its touch on China. And so I think, I think the jury is still out. You know, what is this going to look like and how is it going to roll out? I mean, look, governments are still very, very supportive of the decarbonization thematic. I don't really see that going away at all. You know, you and I both know that building a gigafactory or building a mine takes time. It never happens right in the first, you know, the first crack, so to speak. So mistakes will be made and we're just going to have to learn from them and hopefully apply that knowledge, you know, as quickly as we can. Since you are sitting in our nation's capital, let me ask you uh, to comment on, you've got this whole, everybody was happy when Biden came in and the, you know, whether he admits that he's fallen under the spell of AOC and the, the Green <laughs> New Deal, or he doesn't, there's a direction that at least overtly is the direction the country's going in, yet Nobody wants mining <laughs> or oh, no. not. I won't, I won't say nobody. That's a, a poor choice of words. Very few people that 
sit on that side of the argument appreciate that there has to be some disturbance of the earth right in order to hold an iphone or an android in your hands or to drive an electric vehicle and how do you see that kind of yin and yang playing out because it's i mean look at the whole thing with thacker pass one group protests and the biggest lithium asset in the u.s trying to be developed in a mining friendly state in a very mining friendly state you know, the nimbyism here is strong, right? I mean, it's, and I think that's always sort of the way it's been. I mean, we've sold off our stockpiles and I think we've just sort of relied on this idea that the raw materials will come from elsewhere and we in the United States will produce higher value goods. And it's interesting, that's kind of, I think, what the Chinese are thinking about right now. I mean, they're out all all over the world in Africa and places that we fear to tread, right? Um, writing big checks. That's been part of their model, certainly with the Belt and Road Initiative. But, you know, back to what's happening here, you know, I, I don't know how this is all going to work out. I think at the end of the day, everyone's going to be unhappy, you know? Um, and <laughs> that's, maybe, maybe that's, that's, the, that's the Chris Berry <laughs> summation. Spirit. And yeah, this podcast and the podcast yeah, now. Yeah. No, but I, what I what I mean by that is, Look, you've got the miners, you've got the environmentalists, you've got the downstream players, you've got you've got all of these different special interest groups, for lack of a better phrase. And I just think that, you know, yes, in an ideal world, a mine would be drilled out and permitted and you could push forward. Um, And that obviously is not the case. Now, I just think that perhaps maybe, you know, more stringent ESG criteria. I think that, you know, it could be more expensive to build and construct and operate mines here in the United States. I think that the environmentalists are going to have to realize that if we do want responsible mining, or if we do want eyeballs on the supply chain from mine to magnet or, you know, whatever the catchphrase is, it's arguably better to have domestic mining where you can actually see how, you know, material is produced as opposed to, well, you know, the cobalt and the Congo, I mean, we think it was responsibly mined, but you never really know. So, you know, my view is that, Everyone's going to have to give a little bit here to really make this work. But I, I would rather I would rather have a, a regionalized, you know, maybe the U.S. and Canada and Mexico or the U.S., Canada and um, South America working together here because there's just more, much more, many more, excuse me, eyeballs on what we're trying to do. Do you think there's going to be pressure? I found it really interesting that Abelmarl just after the whole Biden, we're going to build infrastructure and now they're going to double the size of silver peak which is a de minimis asset i was going to say and it, it means it means nothing but wow. you've got number two and number three hydroxide producer in china are abel marl and live in mm-hmm. <laughs> how much of live <laughs> hydroxide gets made here versus made in china how yeah. much of Abelmarl's? I mean, Abelmarl hardly makes any hydroxide in in the U.S. And yet, when you take the next, the three projects we'll, we would likely talk about, Thacker and Piedmont and Standard, mm-hmm. none of those are U.S. companies. I know. <laughs> I know. It's strange, right? They're so, you know, they're Canadian or Australian companies with assets in the U.S. or, or you know, in the case of LAC, obviously, down in Argentina, um, with foreign, when I say this from an American perspective, in some cases, foreign partners trying to supply a domestic market 
And so it's, it's just very, very, I think it's hard for the companies to really, you know, wrap themselves in the flags and say, we're going to keep this on shore, especially today. You know, this is a globalized market. It's a globalized trading system. All of the rhetoric that we hear around deglobalization and regionalization, which I think is going to happen selectively over the coming years. I think really hard to, to fight against that. But, you know, yeah, in an ideal world, you'd see General Motors do a big offtake agreement with a U.S., you know, lithium or nickel miner, and, and it would all stay here. Uh, and again, from a transparency perspective, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. But the markets just aren't really constructed that way right now. So it's just a challenge, I think. It's a, it's a political challenge for the CEOs of these companies to try and, I guess, convince people, convince the politicians, convince investors that, you know, they want to supply this market in this part of the world when a lot of the business is over in Asia and it's going to remain over in Asia, quite frankly. So it's, it's a really, really big challenge. Yeah. Well, personally, I, I think the, I'd love to see more investment in the U S whether it be by a Canadian flag company or an Aussie flag company. Sure. The problem with China is you don't know what company is going to get Jack Mod next. Right. And that could be Gangfen. It could be Tanchi. You just don't know. So I think, I think in one hand, it does serve us well to be careful about the overall supply chain. I think on the other hand, to, to, to expect that it has to be U.S. investment, uh, doesn't really or or allies allied investment like i said it's it's weird with the eu because they are allies of ours but we are competing with the eu for capital and investment and and to build out these supply chains so you know it's just a weird sort of hybrid view i think of 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 how to look at the supply chains going forward well i, I hope my european listeners will forgive me for what i'm about to say but um, i i think that all of those people in the EU that think they are so far ahead of us. I think the EU should watch what happens here because when, when the shift happens, once the free market gets working on this, it'll happen a lot faster than it happened. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree with that. I mean, and you know, look at maybe one way to think about this is look at the vaccine rollout of here in the United States relative to other parts of the world. I mean, I remember Biden came out and said, we want to do 100 million shots in 100 days. And I thought, man, I, I hope he's right. You know, I hope we can do this. And we blew it away. And it's just to me, it's an example of what happens when the public sector and the private sector align on a goal and make it happen. And there's no reason to believe that that same type of thing can't happen here in the United States around electrification. I'm not saying it's going to happen in 100 days, but, you know, it could. Well, and, and I read an article in the FT think it was this morning that you know germans are going to serbia to get vaccine because they because yeah. they can't get it and but they're getting a vaccine that was developed in germany in mm-hmm. serbia and shout out to my friends in serbia <laughs> we do have listeners in serbia uh by the way all right so if we look at where we've come in four years four years seems like 20 years ago to me yeah if, if you really internalize sitting in the bar at the Sheraton <laughs> in Buenos Aires in November of 2017 in, in what seemed possible then. People still weren't sure whether Tesla was going to survive yep. <laughs> back yep. then. 
And now it's, it's obviously a, a whole different story. Let's go back to Chris Reed for a minute. I was in the Westin in Perth when he first said to me, everybody talks about the first million tons, but the second million tons are going to come in four years, not five decades. <laughs> <laughs> and where's that coming from? Yep. And, and it was a great point because I know a lot of people in Europe are thinking, oh, it'll be recycling. I said, hey, 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 the, the second million tons is not a recycling story. Maybe the third million tons is a recycling yeah. story, but there's just, there's not enough inventory uh, in enough time to have that happen. So mm-hmm. when you, when you look at that, what do you think is going to happen now? The cost curve's going North. It has yeah. to. Yeah, totally. And even a company like Gangfin, I mean, when you look at the way their pricing goes from Mount Marion, I mean, their, their cost their costs go up, unlike Abelmarls mm-hmm. from green bushes, be just because of the, the nature of they only own half that asset. And so even the, the lower cost guys and the, and the top producers, in some respects, are having big changes to sure. their, either their margins, they got to get price. So how do you see the next line of projects? The 300% growth in the next five years, cut to the chase. Where's it coming from, Chris? Well, I, you know, you're going to have your, the existing producers obviously are going to, are going to take uh, a portion of that. And some of that is, I think, holdover from, you know, the expansion plans that we heard about in 2017 and 2018. So, you know, Albemarle will step up, SQM will step up. I'm not sure about Livent. It was interesting to me, like... Albemarle just raised over a billion dollars. SQM just raised over a billion dollars. We talked about this earlier, even the near-term juniors, the Lacks, the Sigmas, the Piedmonts, they're all, they all raised a ton of money, but Livent was not, not at the table. I, I'm not sure about that, but um, it, it's going to be a mixture. I agree with you. you know, like I've done a lot of work on recycling, and my view is that the bulk of supply for recycling is going to come from scrap. It's going to come from gigafactory scrap, yeah. at least initially. Sure. Um, which, you know, it's not obviously standard battery packs. It's dribs and drabs, but there's going to be a lot of it, especially if we're going to go to two terawatt hours of capacity, uh, depending upon, you know, your thoughts and who you believe. Even if we go to one and a half terawatt hours, right? It's still a ton. Um, but the challenge here is that you're right. The cost curve is going up. It's going to get more expensive for these miners to produce that marginal ton, which could potentially affect economics. And you've also got this interesting conundrum where battery pricing is falling. Okay. I mean, this is not black box algorithmic special stuff that I came up with. We all, we all see it. Right. And so battery prices continue to fall because of scale and because of technology, because of what companies like nano one have done. And I am a very, happy long-term shareholder of the company. So I just use them as an example of how technology is sort of, and just over the last four years has really made its presence felt in terms of how we get from today to 2025 and then 2030. And, you know, Nano One is only one example. So I think you're going to see a ramp in recycling of scrap before by 2028 to 2030, you know, the battery packs that are being produced today are at or near end of life. The existing producers I mentioned before will, will have to ramp and they're going to have to go after 
let's just say not necessarily top tier assets because all the top tier assets are mostly spoken for. The problem with the talking about the scrap is that's almost like upgrading bad carbonate from Oracobre and SQM. Sure. Because that scrap was counted. Somebody said, well, the lithium intensity of this many gigawatt hours is 0.8. But if you have a really high scrap level, it goes over one. That wasn't a battery that had a life. That was right. lithium that has to be recycled before it comes to life. And that actually is a detriment. The fact that these guys, and I, I do know, I mean, one of the, one of the unnamed plants in Europe they were having 50% scrap when they first started up. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that that comes down in subsequent years because of learning curves and all that kind of stuff. But that's, you're right. I mean, there is no uniformity there. So it's just really difficult. So the, the bottom line and the takeaway is that, okay, scrap isn't going to save the day or recycling isn't going to save the day for the reasons that you mentioned. All right, so there's some variability there from supply. We know from literally years of case studies how challenging it is for even for existing producers to ramp supply. I think about Albemarle and La Negra. And so there are question marks there. Yet, as we mentioned earlier, governments are still hell-bent on decarbonization. And, you know, Biden throwing $174 billion at, at the EV thesis, you know, it's to be determined how it all gets sliced and diced. But that's a lot of money. On, on the infrastructure. And so I don't see how it honestly can't be bullish for the coppers and the lithiums of the world going forward. The more time it takes to get the investment in lithium just makes the top four or five lithium companies story look a lot better. Mm -hmm. The high prices, when they peak, they're going to stay high for a lot longer than they did last time. Yeah. And I, I don't think you want to see, well, I, I was going to say, you don't want to see $24,000 carbonate or $20 or $24,000 hydroxide and 20K carbonate. Maybe you do. If, if you're long in the names, you do, right? That's a, that's a great point that I'd like to get into too. Because I've had a lot of people write to me on my website and say, well, how come that price forecast you just put out doesn't show price going higher? than it went in 2016. And the, the, the short answer to that is the real high price was industrial grade mm -hmm. because of the shortage, because the right. battery guys had contracts and you didn't see, you didn't see the Atacama selling carbonate. It, it never got really over 16, 16, five. That's right. I, I was the guy selling the 28,000 stuff, but I was selling <laughs> it to, I was selling it to grease makers. In the spot market, you may see those aberrations. But when we look at kind of the structural, the Tesla contracts, the Gangfen contract with LG, those things, they're, they're not going to the stratosphere. And, and this time, because battery is so much more of the market than it was then, yeah. it, it's going to... Now, I, I mean, I could be wrong. And yeah, we could be headed for $30 lithium chemicals. I don't think so. But when you look at all the other factors that are driving down the cost of a battery per kilowatt hour, and you do the math, a few dollars on lithium isn't going to be what is the tipping point on it. Right. Yeah. You know, meeting ICE versus EV yeah. parity. It's, yeah. it's not going to be lithium price that screws that up. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, people have, I think, rightly focused on cobalt as the real culprit. 
in terms of you know messing up battery economics for lack of a better phrase and i think nickel could probably be thrown in in that mix as well uh, but again completely different sort of supply and demand dynamics obviously nickel nickel's a much much larger market so it, again it just comes back to this sort of idea that this is not it's not cut and dry. I think the only thing that's cut and dried is that we know that demand is going to increase for these battery materials. The question becomes how much for which, which one. And, and again, coming back to the technology angle, you know, what does that mean for nickel? What does that mean for cobalt? I mean, are we really going to have cobalt free, you know, high energy density batteries here by 2028, 2030? I don't know. Well, I know? think you, I think you've got cobalt free batteries up to the middle level of the market right now. Mm-hmm with the improvements in LFP. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's, that, that's why I, I want to go back to Europe one more time, because when, when Europe <laughs> started down this road, it was all, it's all going to be high nickel. And having spent a fair amount of time on the roads in Europe, I don't see that as, yeah, they make great high-end cars, but the average guy in Europe isn't going to be driving a hundred kilowatt hour battery car, in my opinion. Yeah. Another maybe miscall on that whole story is that high nickel was going to be required for the European market just because that seems sexier or something. I don't Everyone's know. Everyone's on the Autobahn, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of small cars there. I, I, and- you know what, Joe? I just think even to this day, like we, we would go to these conferences in Las Vegas or... Buenos Aires or Santiago and we get up there on the stage and you know I'd always ask people in the audience okay how many of you in this audience own an electric vehicle battery electric vehicle hybrid I don't care you know and in the good old days maybe there were like 250 people in the audience Um, and I don't know maybe like six people would raise their hand and this is a captive audience of people that are interested in this and yeah. are willing to like be first early adopters. And my point is that people are worried about energy density and they're worried about range anxiety, but they've never been, they don't have any experience with it, right? It's just sort of what they hear or read. I don't think that range anxiety is really an issue. I really don't. And I, the more that people get behind the wheel of an EV, Tesla, Nissan, BYD, I don't care what it is, um, they're going to realize that this this whole shift is going to happen much faster than people think it is. But it's all about getting people behind the wheel. Well, and it's going to happen as fast as lithium supply allows it to. That's right. right. I I honestly believe that. I mean, people think, oh, yeah, you're the lithium guy, blah, blah, blah. But, (laughs) you know, you can be, uh, I, I forget that guy's name that said it was going to be hundred percent penetration by 2030 speaks. All, everybody loves the guy, but I was like, sorry. Um, no. We're not, you know, w- w- the lithium industry can't get there from here. And, and I think the other battery metals have similar challenges, but I think probably lithium because lithium is in every, <laughs> the touch points everywhere. And yeah. like I say, the, the more LFP <clears throat> there is, the less nickel and cobalt are a problem. Right. So anyway. No, I, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you for making the full circle to episode 100. I'm a, a four P. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, two rapid fire questions for you. Buddy. Oh, all right. And then I got a couple for you. So. Okay. What is 
the biggest lesson you've learned since March 2020? Uh, wow. So many. I think that, um, you know, when you're in uncharted waters, which is what the global economy really was in March 2020, um, you, you need a team, you need a family, you need a group that you can sort of rely on. You know, in our case, we, my family and I, we left New York on like March 12th and we're still down here in DC. Uh, we made the decision. It was March 12th, 2020, not yeah, March 12th. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, all, all jokes aside, I mean, it was um, obviously this, this enormous event. And, and so we made the decision just from a family perspective to move out of the city and um, not restart our lives down here because we do have our roots in DC. But I think one of the biggest lessons is, you know, Number one, embrace change and, and have a team around you that you can trust and you can work with, whether or not that's, that's family or business. And, you know, with respect to embracing change, I mean, we all thought the world was going to end a year ago. You know, oil was at negative $37 a barrel. Uh, the global economy was frozen in its tracks. You know, governments pumping trillions of dollars into the economy to restart it. And here we are and things have bounced back and bounce back, I think, pretty strongly. So uh, I just think you really need a good support network around you and also the ability to adapt and embrace, and embrace change. Okay. What is the last book you read? Okay. Uh, <laughs> hang on a second here. I know you're probably reading five at the same time. But... Oh, I got, I've got two, actually, um, that I just finished. This one, it's called, let me see if you can see it, 2034. Yeah. It's, it's fiction. It's actually, it's a sobering read. It's called a, a novel of the next world war. And it's essentially what happens after a cyber attack happens in the United States precipitated by China. So really, really interesting book. It's sort of, like I said, it's, I'll call it, I don't want to call it um, full fiction, but there's a lot in there that I think could happen today. So it's a pretty sobering read. Um, and another one is this book, the World Turned Upside Down, written by an old China hand. His name is Clyde Prestowitz. And actually, he talks about a lot of what we talked about over the course of this podcast in terms of how the U.S. should compete with China, how the rest of the world should compete with China, and also some of the things that he would like to see the Chinese do to, you know, perhaps play a little bit more fairly on, on global markets. I read another story about Jack Ma today, and I... I own a fair amount of Alibaba, so I have a, <laughs> I have a vested interest. But it, it's astounding to me how easy it is for you to fall out of favor. I mean, this guy was the darling, right? He yeah. was like, yeah. he was the entrepreneur, the Chinese entrepreneur yeah. of, of all time. And, you know, and then he came out and said, by the way, I'm a CCP member and I'm, you know, I think he sold all his hold. I mean, it was just, just astounding. So Okay. Totally you said different. you have, you said you have a question for me. I have, I have questions. Two. So okay. I want to turn the tables a little bit. I always liked your billboard questions. So if you could put something on a billboard for the whole, whole world to see, what would it say? You know, I'm going to slavishly copy my friend, Yuan Gao. <laughs> and I asked that question to him and I always liked his answer. And that was, enjoy your life every day. Nice. It's, it's, yeah, it's a simple, it's a simple thing. And if I was going to not say that answer, I would use my 
Wim Hof answer, but that has an expletive in it. So um, got to keep this clean, Joe. I'll keep it clean. All right. And one last question, maybe keying off of enjoying every day. You know, you asked me what I've learned since, since, you know, a year ago, what, what have you learned over the course of 100 episodes of the global lithium podcast? I mean, not so much hydroxide versus, you know, LFP, but what have you learned about the industry or human nature or, or life in general? Well, I tell you, this was, we, when we did the first episode, I didn't know if there would be an episode two. <laughs> and, and I didn't know that if there would be any interest in this. And the, the fact that it's been downloaded in more than 130 countries never ceases to amaze me. And that the Eduardo Betrand episode had over 80,000 downloads. Yeah, uh, That was astounding. I wanted to use it as a tool to keep learning. And it, it's been a great tool to keep refreshing my knowledge, but it's been, uh, you know, I have to go back to the expletive, I guess, but you know, when I started doing what I'm doing now, I always said, I, I got a no asshole rule. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, if I don't like somebody, I, I, I don't have to work with them. And there, there's just a lot of nice people in this business. And I, you know, I've enjoyed every episode and whether it was with you or Ken Brinsden or my, all my yeah. buddies at Lack, and I've had a lot of Lack guys on the podcast: John Evans, Renee LeBlanc, Alexi, that whole team out there. I mean, it's yep. it's um, John Canalitzis and Tom Hodgson were on back in the day. It's a group that I enjoy learning from and, and spending time with, and I think that you can't really ask for much more than that. This isn't like you know, people keep asking me what I'm gonna retire. And I think I don't really view what I do as work. Oh, that's great. And no, I mean, I, and that's in this time, the other lesson I learned during COVID was it's actually okay to be home. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I honestly, if I went back before March 1st, when I came home from Tokyo of 2020, it had been since 1993 that I had could could find a time that I'd been home more than three weeks straight. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And so I kind of worried that maybe my wife would have to kill me or, you know, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's okay doing this, but I'm very anxious now being fully vaccinated, having had COVID and, and, Fortunately, not having had a, a yeah. bad case, I I'm really anxious to get back out there. But it still seems like it's going to be a while. I mean, hell, you where do you even... think? You'll, where will you go first? Where, well, where would you go first? Outside of the U.S., first place I'd probably go is Vancouver, mm. just because I have friends there. <laughs> and you know, shout out to my friends at Lack. Shout out to the guys at Nano One. Sure. And then, and then, of course, it would be Asia. Thought I'd be going to the Olympics, but uh, I also thought the Olympics would be last year. Last year, um, I I went to the last Olympics that were in Japan. Actually, I was there on opening day at Nagano. Oh wow! Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to Asia, but I don't know when that's going to be. I can't sneak in. <laughs> it's tough because I, I don't think they're going to let any foreigners at the Olympics, other than. Yep need you know other than athletes and probably commentators and press but so yeah. uh 
yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's still a weird situation, but you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Looking forward to, I'm, I'm going to New York next month. I haven't been, you know, I've really been anywhere other than up to my hometown to get COVID over Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> nice present. <laughs> and, you know, I took a, a couple of weeks ago, I took a trip to Florida for a week and Florida seems very normal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't in Miami. I mean, I was in a, in a smaller town way up the coast, but that, that gave me hope. And, and, and the Carolinas are, are, I think, probably halfway back to normal. Uh, so. Good. Anyway, it's always a pleasure to talk to the voice of reason. Hey. And uh, I hope you'll, you'll be on again in the future. And I follow you relatively <laughs> closely. Surreptitiously. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you have a much broader platform than i have i'm a pretty uh, i don't know about that i have a pretty narrow platform which i'm, I'm not complaining about but it i mean it, it's intentionally focused and you you have a much broader uh purview, purview. so uh excellent well thank you for the opportunity and uh you know maybe i'll be on episode 200 who knows yeah well <laughs> we'll see i mean i didn't I, honestly i i if you'd have said four years ago that we'd be doing I thought it would be 12 a year max. And even that wow. I wasn't, wasn't sure about. So uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. You. And uh, we will hopefully see you in person soon. Very soon. Hope so, Joe. It is always a pleasure to uh, speak with Chris Berry. He's known as the voice of reason for a reason. But as I close out this part one of episode 100, a couple other things I would be remiss if I didn't mention. First, I want to thank all of the guests who have been on the first 100 episodes. And I think we've, we've had just slightly more than 100 guests because although we've had several repeaters, We've also had several episodes uh, with multiple guests on uh, a single episode. I'd also like to do a shout out and a thank you to Elena Peach, who produced most of the first 50 or so episodes. She also uh, taught me a lot about how to do a podcast when she held a uh, podcast boot camp. And then finally, a uh, thank you to Emily Hirsch, who, although I have not actually spoken to her in a year and a half, longtime listeners to the podcast obviously remember the co-hosting days. Part two of episode 100 will be on the website in a week or so. It will include clips from many of the top episodes and some commentary. Thanks for listening.